Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com. Because you won't find us on Google or Facebook, we respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone. This is Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we have a real treat for you. We're going to be interviewing Dr. David Bronstein, who is a physician, been around the block about as many times as I have. And he has a clinic up out just outside of Detroit with five clinicians in there, three physicians, one PA and one nurse practitioner, and they've treated a number of patients successfully, not successfully, very successfully with a regimen that you're going to be incredibly excited about because it includes my absolute, without any micro doubt or question at all, my favorite intervention for COVID and upper respiratory infections with this nebulized peroxide. But he has a far broader approach that we're going to go into detail. So welcome. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So um, I think we need to go back into, uh, give us a little uh, perspective historically as to how you arrived at this, this approach. I mean, we, you've, you're, you're really well known for your, uh, I believe your uh, focus on iodine and you've done a lot of work on there, published books on it, but this is a derivative work. And actually iodine is included in your protocol, but I'm, I'm wondering if you can, get down to the more fundamental things on the, I, it, it appears, because appears, you've you published a study on, on your results uh, and your protocol involves uh, something you've been using for about 20 years, it appears. And, you know, so it's an oral intervention and then you just recently this year revised it for COVID-19. So give us, give us a history as to how this came to be. Well, I mean, the history goes back about 28 years when I began practicing holistic medicine um, you know, of course, we would see people with influenza and influenza-like illnesses every fall and winter. And so I started searching for things that would help people's immune systems, you know, take care of and recover from these viral illnesses that they got and make them stronger. So initially started with using vitamin C and vitamin D. Um, I was started to check vitamin D levels in 1992 and finding most of my patients were very low in vitamin D. Wow, you were an incredibly early adopter, 92. Man, that's great. It's 25. It was right around when you started doing it. I, you know, we never ran. No, into I think other, I, but. I, I, I mean, I may, I don't think I understood it that that early. I was probably later 90s, not the early 90s. So congratulations, that's fantastic. So, so what I found was the vast majority of my patients, you know, well over 90% were deficient in vitamin D. And those who just had more chronic illnesses and were sicker in general, they usually had lower levels of vitamin D. And then, you know, the research was starting to come out with vitamin D supporting the immune system and having a whole bunch of um, pleiotrophic effects on the body. And so I began, you know, initially using vitamin C and D and, um, then I came across vitamin A, and I originally read the research on vitamin A in measles and you know how much vitamin A helped third world countries when they had measles infections and helped these children and adults you know 
have a mild case of measles and recover uneventfully if they had enough vitamin A. So I quickly added vitamin A to the regimen. Um, and then a few years later, I learned about iodine. And you know, iodine has direct viral cytal effects. It has immune system effects. It helps the white blood cells produce hydrogen peroxide to fight viral and bacterial infections and, and as well as its thyroid effects. But you know, iodine got added to the regimen. And so the, the original you know, treatment of our patients was you know, vitamins A, C, D, and iodine at high doses for about four days. And what we found was our patients did not develop pneumonia, did not get hospitalized, did not die from the flu and other influenza-like illnesses at anywhere near the rates that they should have, you know, when you looked at the published uh, rates of problems with these illnesses. So um, as, as I, you know, I went to an oxidative medicine course and learned about hydrogen peroxide and we quickly initiated the use of nebulized hydrogen peroxide, which was one of the neatest therapies that we use and you and i spoke about that earlier we'll get what to year, that what year was that that you went to this course that was in the mid somewhere in the mid 1990s wow um, wow that was a charlie Farr course i think yeah um, he, he was the guy that started it and i don't think we learned it at that course i think we learned it from a participant at the you know one of one of the other doctors who just was talking about it frank schallenberger i can't no it wasn't schallenberger then i can't remember who it was at that point but we we started using nebulized and IV hydrogen peroxide and everything we added to the therapy, you know, as we went along, patients seemed to get better. So a couple of years later from that, um, I was at a different course and talking to Robert Rowan about, you know, Hey, what's working in your practice? And he said, why aren't you using ozone yet? And he said, I've been reading what you've been writing and you're not writing about ozone. I'm like, you know, I've been reading about it. I just, didn't really know about it. He goes, well, take my course. So we, uh, my partner went and took his course and brought back ozone to our practice. And we started using that. And, you know, that was the latest addition to it. And um, the, so what we found over 28 years of using this therapy is that our patients did well. I mean, they, you know, I never made a claim that this cured any, influenza or influenza like illness, what it does is it supports the immune system and in multiple ways and people get over it just like they've gotten over for eons of time and if look if we didn't get over these viral illnesses we wouldn't survive as a human species so it certainly makes sense we want a strong immune system you know in place when we get exposed to these pathogenic organisms and so when COVID came around um, was coming around, you know, and the first case was in Washington or California, depending on which research you look at. But the first reported case really was in uh, outside of Seattle. Um, you know, we were all on edge as a country and, and we saw COVID take off in the Seattle area and then it was moving on west to east across the country. And just before it came to Detroit in the end of February, um, we were warned that is a country that we're going to have, you know, millions of deaths and, and this is going to be the biggest uh, catastrophe, medical catastrophe in our lifetimes and could rival the flu epidemic from the early 20th century. It killed millions. And you know, everyone was on edge. And I, I had a meeting with my staff at the end of a work week. I remember it. It was the last Thursday in February. And I told the staff that the first 28 years of our, of our holistic practice was truly practice for this pandemic, this pandemic that there's no immunity to it known, that we have a virgin population that's going to be exposed to this, 
that there's no treatment known. And I said, I think we've got this covered. I said, I can't guarantee anyone anything, but we've treated coronavirus in the past years, although we didn't culture for it. And I can't tell you exactly what strain of Corona, but Corona is known to be part of the influenza-like illnesses for you know eons of time. Um, and our patients don't get- well, Let me stop you there. You do a good job in your paper of describing this because there's a lot of confusion. So coronavirus, as you mentioned, has been around for time immemorial, as far as we can know. But the, the, the difference is that even though SARS-CoV-2 is a, is a coronavirus, it's a new type. So why don't you differentiate that for us? So the, 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 the coronavirus has been around human existence for thousands of years. So the recent corona pandemics or corona problems have been, you know, they were the original SARS virus that hit China and Toronto and a few Asian countries, you know, I think that was early in the 2000s. 2003, yeah. Yeah, then we have uh, MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, uh, a few years ago that hit Saudi Arabia. Um, and now we really have the third one, which is, you know, uh, COVID-19 or SARS, you know, COVID-2. And so although it wasn't treated, you know, I, I couldn't promise my staff that I knew this was going to work for SARS-CoV-2. I just said to them, I don't see any reason why this wouldn't work. Um, for this illness is it hasn't worked for the other viral slash coronavirus illnesses that we've been treating. And I told the staff that nobody had to work through this. I was going to work through this. Um, my partners were going to work through this. And we felt like we needed our office open. The patients were going to need somewhere to go because I predicted that most doctors' offices were going to close, that um, if this thing really took off, people were going to be scared out of their minds. And you know, the hospitals could be overflowing with patients. And I said, we actually have a therapy I think can help. They, they really don't, conventional medicine didn't know what to do with it at that point. So we rolled into COVID in Detroit in March, you know, just as it hit New York, New Jersey, and Massachusetts. We were the, we were the four big hotspots in the country when it happened. And um, at the beginning, we were in March going out to our parking lot to treat our patients from the car where they put their arm out the window and we do an IV of hydrogen peroxide and vitamin C <laughs> in you the middle pictures, of the snow. Do you have pictures of that? Oh, we have pictures of it in the middle uh, of the you, snow. Send me, send me some. I want to put in the article. All right. In the middle of the snow and sleet and, you know, cold weather and the wind. And I, I vividly remember the snow coming down on my face mask as, you know, I'm shaking my head like a dog trying to see what, you know, put the IV in. And then at the end of the treatment, we would do ozone. And we, we didn't want to do IV ozone outside because it was just the, the elements weren't good and you know, we weren't inside our office. So we decided to do intramuscular ozone. So we used the, 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 the muscle in the butt, the buttocks. And so it, people who were sick and couldn't breathe, we'd meet them in the parking lot at the end of the IVs. We'd open their car door and have them stick their rear end out the car door and we put ozone in each cheek and send them on their way. And what we heard routinely from patients was that, you know, after the therapies and after they started, you know, we, we would get them hooked up on a nebulizer too, a nebulizing hydrogen peroxide and iodine, that after they started the therapies, usually after the first nebulized treatment, their airways would open up and they could breathe again. Because their big complaint was they couldn't breathe when they called us. And we ended up treating 107 patients that I wrote in the study, the published peer-reviewed study. We had one hospitalization and we had no ventilators, no deaths. And um, I was you know, busy interviewing patients and 
letting them tell their stories and publishing it online with titles of my interviews, there's still hope out there. Number one, number two, number three. And, you know, we were, you know, I was interviewing my patients as well as my partner's patients and letting them tell their story. And I thought everything was going well until I received a warning letter from the FTC telling me that because there's no prevention, treatment, or cure for COVID, any mention thereof falls in violation of, you know, FTC law, and therefore you have 48 hours to remove it or else. And so I complied with them. We removed it, and you know, I published the paper. And in in their in their first letter to me, they said because there's no human clinical studies documenting what you say works, um, you need to remove it. So after we published the study my lawyer wife sent the FTC a letter saying, well, here's a published study. We'd like to, we'd like to put my study on my website without comments. We'd like to publish it without comment. And they said, no, there's not, it's not a random, we want a randomized controlled study. So we felt like we had punched the ball in the end zone and then they moved the goalpost back 30 yards, you know, after we did that. But that's where we stand right now with it. And we're still treating patients with it. The study was, on 107 patients, we probably treated 10 more patients since then, and um, you know, was still good success with it. You know, it's interesting that they had that response, but to get uh, 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 approval by an institutional review board to do a study, knowing what we know now, they would probably deny that protocol because, and this is done in many many approaches, is because when you know that the therapy is so effective, they have to stop the study because too many people are dying because they aren't getting the real treatment. You know, I wrote in the article that um, the reason I didn't do a randomized study was it's, it's unethical for me yeah, to withhold that treatment for right. people when I know that therapy, or I'm as certain as I can be that therapy was gonna work. I, there's no way I could sleep at night if I was randomizing people to get the therapy and others to not get the therapy. Um, and, and COVID was a new illness. We had never seen it. Nobody had ever seen it. There were no randomized studies. And um, there, there, there's no reason to. There's too many people were dying. You know, we've already had over 100,000 deaths of this thing. You know, it's just, just tragic and it's, it's terrible. And it's uh, really going to be a stain on medicine, you know, when the final autopsy is written on this. Absolutely. And, you know, it's become progressively clear that the intention of this this whole process was really a, a, an existential threat to our personal freedoms and liberties. And you can see it being manifested on a daily basis where the submission to wearing the mask and social isolation and forced locked shutdowns, which is probably going to uh, gear up in full force in the fall. So it, it's just tragic what they're doing. But I, I had a few questions on your approach. One, I, I, I'm surprised, to, and I didn't, I was not aware of this mechanism of action that iodine actually increased peroxides and peroxide production in the white blood cells, which is the bodies that that is the way our immune system works to kill infections. So maybe you can review that because it's you know we're, we're independent of any medicine, natural therapy, or herb, uh, the, our body has this system designed to kill infecting pathogens, and it involves the lysosomes and the production of hydrogen peroxide through uh, nitric oxide, uh, actually, uh, not NOx. I, I, I forget the enzyme, but why don't you review that for us? Because it's such an important, critical element in, in getting people better. Well, each of, each of the therapies that we were doing, um, 
you know, there, there's a whole bunch of bases for it. I mean, iodine has viral, direct viral cytal effects, so it kills viruses. Um, it also has immune system modulating effects. It helps to helps the white blood cells, you know, produce their hydrogen peroxide to fight infections and to produce other, you know, chemicals to fight infections. Um, you know, every cell needs and requires iodine. It's one of the most efficient items I've seen in checking people of nutrients for 28 years. Um, there's even of, even more so than vitamin D, right? From your perspective, um, um, even more so than vitamin. You know, vitamin D is fairly deficient too out there. You know, I would I, I would I don't know if I'd say more so. I'd say you know they're they're neck and neck there. Okay. Um, but the you know vitamin C is known to increase hydrogen peroxide production as well. You know, when you use it at high doses, I mean. All these things, you know, vitamin A helps, you know, modulate the immune system and, and um, ACD and, you know, the effects of vitamin D, which you've been writing about for 20 plus years, you know, of stimulating and supporting the immune system of, have, have been known for years. So, you know, I mean, you brought up the point of, you know, here we are wearing masks and social isolation and waiting for the vaccine. Well, while we do all this, you know, 150,000 are dead and, and more are dying every day. And why is none of the powers that be talking about the immune system? I mean, how do people recover from this thing? I just wrote an article, it's published on Children's Health Defense that said that, uh, I don't remember the exact numbers, 5 million or 6 million Americans have the illness and 3 million have recovered or something like that. How do you think they recovered? They recovered because their immune system overcame the illness and neutralized it. And so, Perhaps instead of just relying on masks and social isolation, we should be talking about the immune system. How do we support it? And, you know, I'd like to, you know, throw out the question, since when did talking about supporting the immune system become illegal? And when do you have to be quiet about it? Um, but unfortunately, you know, in, this, in this time and age, you know, this is where we're at right now. Um, and it's a yeah, sad Well, thing. there is a simple and easy answer to that question. And it is because it, interferes with the um, motivation and the goals of the people that have directed this pandemic. Uh, and it basically conflicts with some of the therapies they want, which would be primarily expensive antiviral therapies that don't work anywhere near as well, like remdesivir, $3,500 for a course of treatment. And then of course the immunizations. That are, that are lined up, that have been accelerated through the system with operation warp speed, putting them into production in under a year, under a year when it's almost physically impossible to do appropriate safety studies in under five to six, seven, eight, nine years. This is gonna be one of the most catastrophic interventions ever when they have this vaccine program. And you and I both remember, because uh, there was about, I think it might've been the time right before we entered med school, was uh, the, the um, swine flu epidemic, which was 76. And they rushed this vaccine into the market and literally nearly 50, given to nearly 50 million people. And then they started waking up. And it, even though the CDC had documented evidence of neurological complications, there was thousands of people who became permanently injured or even killed and resulting in awarding over $3 billion in judgments against this the, the, uh, to, uh, given to them and these patients and they had to stop it. They actually had to stop it. And this, they, the, these judgments were awarded because this was like 10 years before they passed the legislation for the Vaccine Compensation Injury Act. So 
you know, that we're, we're that that is going to be nothing compared to the, the consequences of the vaccine that's going to be released this fall. Nothing. It's going to pale in comparison. It's going to take out tens of thousands of people, maybe more, and the permanent injuries and complications from it are going to be devastating. And they're going to be lining up to get this because they've engineered this and propagandized and brainwashed people to believe this is their only choice and that immune supporting strategies like the ones you've been proposing are completely ignored. It's, it's, just, it's, a, it's a sad time, you know, I mean, it, what I, you know, I've been writing a book on viruses, which I'm trying to finish up this week, a holistic approach to viruses. And in this book, I was actually just reviewing it before I came on the interview with you. Yeah, no, maybe we'll have to have you back on for the book. Thank you. Yeah. you know, I was just writing the, the section where I was saying that this illness is a example of what's wrong with our country. The health of our country is in such decline. We finished last or nearly last in every single health indicator when compared to other Western countries. And this is why we got hit so hard with this. And nobody talks about our health. All they're talking about is a, you know, mass social isolation and wait for a vaccine. And until they talk about our health and our immune system, what about the next virus that comes around? Um, what are they gonna do about that one? And you're, you're absolutely right about this warp speed vaccine. You know, my, my comments of this warp speed vaccine to the world is, I hope it's safe and effective, but I don't think I'd be first in line getting this thing. Not when it's bypassing all the safety studies and um, safety studies on vaccines have been poor from the beginning you know, time with, since we've had vaccines. But this is really something to watch, you know, in real time. So I wouldn't be first in line for this thing. What I'd be first in line with is trying to figure out how am I going to support my immune system and, and you know, how is it going to be strong? So when I'm confronted with these different viruses, because after this one, there's going to be the next one next year and the one after that the year after. Um, so, you know, you're not going to depend on another work speed project. You're going to depend on yourself to get over these things. And we can do it. Yeah, yeah, we can. And that's what I want to dive into now because you, your study was absolutely magnificent. I can't applaud your work for, for uh, more, more gratefully than, than, and appreciatively because it really is a, a massive uh, contribution to the literature. Uh, the, um, I want to help people understand the details of it, and I, but I had some, some bordering questions around that, though, and I'm wondering, you know, what's, what's in the news quite a bit now, largely because Trump promoted it, was hydroxy, is hydroxychloroquine or Plaquenil, which has been a, an age-old uh, drug used to treat primarily malaria, but also autoimmune diseases. And we've millions and millions of doses and very safe. I mean, they purport some cardiac arrhythmias, but that's in really unusual, bizarre scenarios. It's, it's one of the most the safest drugs out there. Not that I'm a big drug proponent, but I just, I'm just wondering from your perspective. Now, just, just to frame the hydroxychloroquine, it works only with zinc. If you give it by itself or if you give it too late in the illness, it's not going to work because it, it tends to prevent viral replication. If the virus is horse out of the barn, you've got all the viruses replicated, it's not going to work. But anyway, it has potential. And, and there's a number of countries like Sweden whose death rate was plummeting. And then the, who's the, the study came out in Lancet which was using uh, falsified data by, by Surgisphere. I mean, one of the worst studies ever published. What a, what a travesty and had to retract it. But that, that caused Sweden to stop using it and then their death rate went up. And then when they retracted the study, they used it again, the death rate went down. So clearly it works. So with that in context, I'm wondering if you encountered any patients of that 107 that were in your, your initial study 
that had been exposed or given hydroxychloroquine? So hydroxychloroquine wasn't part of my 28-year therapy. So we, we didn't use it. All right, so these were, these were only your patients. These weren't patients who had heard of your work, came down with COVID and said, oh, Deb, I know Dr. Brownstein's got something they could use and they were doing something else already. So these were only your patients. These were only, these were only my patients. We had a few, um, maybe eight to 10, that were referred by other doctors um, because they weren't getting better and they were hospitalized and they may have been given hydroxychloroquine, but they were not doing well when we saw them. And I don't, I don't know if they were or they weren't, but you know, my, my feeling with hydroxychloroquine is that number one, physicians should have the ability to prescribe it if they see fit, um, without a doubt. Number two, I've used hydroxychloroquine for autoimmune disorders for 25 years. It is incredibly safe. When it's used appropriately, there's really no, I don't, I don't concern myself with arrhythmias because you use low doses of it and arrhythmias are the high doses of it that are the problem. Um, so I think it should be out there and um, I can't speak to it professionally because I didn't use it, but. Okay, um, I'm just curious, I'm just curious because it is one of the competing therapies out there. I don't, I think it, my view on it from not personal experience because obviously I'm not treating patients, but I, I think it's uh, clearly effective. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind it's effective, but I think it pales in comparison to the protocol you've put together. Uh, and it, it doesn't mean they can't, it's either or, you can use them together. It could be added to yours. Although I think personally think quercetin is a better strategy than hydroxychloroquine, way it's less expensive and less potentially toxic and more effective. I think it clearly works more effectively, but I don't have any trials to, to show that just, just the mechanism of action supports that that would be the case. You know, it's like you didn't have studies when you, in, you did your trial for uh, SARS-CoV-2. No. I saw an interview with Dr. Zelenko, maybe it was on Del Big Tree. Um, yeah. And, you know, here's a family doctor in New York who says he's used it in hundreds of patients and his success with it. So what I felt like when I was watching this interview was, I felt like I was sort of watching me a little bit. Like he's a family doctor, he's on the front lines, he's using this drug, reporting his findings, and he's getting censored for it. And he's getting, you know, pushback on it. And he's just reporting what he's finding. So look, when I, when I saw Dr. Zelenko, I thought, Look, either he's lying about it, and why would he lie about it? Or yeah. he's telling what he's seeing professionally, yeah, and, and what he's seeing was, you know. So what do I think? I think it should be out there. I think doctors should use it if they see fit. And yeah. wh why don't we study it and do better studies than using too high of doses and using it too late, and when they're ventilated and hospitalized, and you know, do it well, early, which is what we should be doing to keep them out of the hospital in the first place. Well, what's happened to hydroxychloroquine is a really good reflection of the uh, push towards the agenda, their, their primary agenda, which is any threat, any threat to what they want to do is, is essentially exterminated. They even spun off fake studies in prestigious journals and got people to sign off on it to discredit hydroxychloroquine, which is a drug. So they're discrediting FDA approved drugs, imagine what they're going to do to non-drug therapies that are even more effective. Of course, they're going to, they're slammed, but they're going to censor it. They're going to keep it out of the public's mind. And, and it's a very, very powerful effect. They know what they're doing. These people are not stupid. But anyway, I, I could go, we can go on for hours on the soapbox, but I want to get back into the, into the details of what you're using now. Um, so um, the, 
I, I'm just so impressed that you've been using it for like 25 years. It's just crazy good. And, and, and somewhat disappointed myself that I missed this. I mean, I, the closest I got was hydrogen peroxide is a wash for the external ears and seems to work well there. I'm not sure the mechanism, probably somewhat similar, but uh, gets into the system and generates the reactive oxygen species, somewhat similar to ozone, but it works far better if you nebulize it. So you're using a surprisingly low concentration. I want to get, get into the details now to give people the understanding of how they can do this thing at home. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. You don't need a prescription. There's virtually, there essentially is no downsides. There's no side effects. So you, for, first of all, let, get, let's get into the basics. So you need a nebulizer. I want you to talk about the nebulizers and I want to talk about the concentration and how it's done because typically you're using 0.04%. Now the typical peroxide that you buy in the grocery store is 3%. We, and neither of us recommend that 3% you want that you get for a dollar at the local drugstore. We recommend you get food grade because it has less stabilizers in it, which could be harmful. Although at the concentration you're using, I am wondering, I'd like you to comment on this too, that even though you'd be nebulizing these potentially toxic stabilizers that are, are, are in commercial grade peroxide, there is such a low concentration, I'm wondering how big of an issue is it because you're taking that 3% and diluting it by a hundredfold or more. So what, what and then when you do when you dilute it, because you know, I want you to go through the dilution process because you're diluting it with normal saline, not distilled water, not purified water, not tap water, normal saline, which so that you don't have an osmotic differential and cause damage in the cells in the lungs when you're nebulizing this, if it was a distilled water preparation. So um, I have, pay, I have um, you know, our staff take uh, food grade hydrogen peroxide. We dilute it down to 3% or from, usually we get 35%, I think, and dilute it 10 to one down to 3% with sterile water. We do this sterilely. And then we take three cc's of that, 3%, and we put it in, 250 cc bag of um, normal saline. And that's what we have people nebulize out of that bag. So it brings it down to a 0.04% hydrogen peroxide uh, concentration. So, you know, when how, I started how, doing- how, How'd you come up with that concentration, by the well, way? Well, you know, it's funny. When I started doing IV therapies, um, and especially the oxidative therapies with hydrogen peroxide and the high dose vitamin C therapies, I, I just was a little uneasy about, um, some of the side effects, particularly with IV hydrogen peroxide, where they would say you would get phlebitis of the veins and the veins would get inflamed and then go away, you know, because they get, it irritates the veins. So I took whatever concentrations I learned at my courses and started diluting it down further. And I would start 50% dilution and then move from there. And then we would try lower and we'd see what seemed to work the best or not. And that's how we came up with this because we, took the concentration, brought it down, and this was the lowest amount that seemed to work as well as the higher amounts. And uh, we do the so same you, thing with you the You went IV. to lower, even lower concentrations, and, that, and lower concentrations didn't seem to help. Lower didn't seem to help as much as this. This is the lowest we could go to. Okay. Um, so when we got it down to this 0.04%, it worked, and it, there was no side effects. We never heard a complaint. The only complaint we ever heard was maybe it didn't help somebody, but it, there was no adverse effects that we heard. And um, along with the nebulizing three cc's of this 0.04% hydrogen peroxide, we have them put a drop of 5% Lugol solution in the nebulizer well. And so they would nebulize this combination of peroxide and iodine. And it was really remarkable. There were, there were patients who 
um, the one patient was hospitalized as an interesting patient. He's, he's a 67 year old man, uh, a, a worker. He's a real muscular, strong guy who got COVID, didn't call me at the beginning, was taking the oral supplements as I was writing about before I had to pull them all from, you know, pull all my blogs and didn't get better. And after about seven or eight days, couldn't breathe, went into the hospital. Um, they diagnosed him with uh, bilateral pneumonia and um, they treat him for a couple of days and give him oxygen and he's a little bit better. And that was in the middle of the crisis when there were no beds and they just sent him home and they sent him home on oxygen and told him, you know, only come back if you can't breathe. So he goes home, he calls me up on the phone and he's crying. And this is a, this is a big, strong guy, you know, just weeping saying, I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, they sent me home to die. And I said to him, you're not going to die. Um, do you have a nebulizer? And he said, no. And I'm like, we need to start nebulizing right away. Well, why don't you come in? I'll meet you in the parking lot. We'll do our IV treatments and give you a nebulizer. And he said, doc, I can't get in the car. I'm going to die. So I said, send your wife over. We'll put a nebulizer in the car um, and tell you how to do it. And so we mixed up the solution for him and she brings the nebulizer home. I called him up at the end of the day. That was in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, I called him up at the end of the day. He had done three nebulized treatments because the wife drove an hour each way to come get that device. And um, he said after the second nebulized treatment, his lungs started to open up. He, he felt about 70% better and didn't feel like he was going to die at that point. He was still coughing and short of breath, but not like he was. After the third treatment, he said he was even better. And he said, you know, he was crying again on the phone saying, you know, I don't know, how, I don't know what to say to you. I'm not going to die anymore. I don't know how to thank you. And well, you don't have to thank me. Just keep nebulizing. And he never got the IV therapy. So th- th- this nebulizer thing really does work. The, w- the one thing I'd like your readers or your listeners to know, the handheld nebulizers don't work as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a handful of patients who were using a handheld nebulizer and trying it with the same solution. They were calling me back saying it's not working. And so when we got them a desktop model, you know, a little stronger model, mm-hmm. um, it worked. So I encourage people not to use a handheld nebulizer, use, use a desktop model. Yeah, that, that, was, that was the point of the question I had is to differentiate between those two. And that's been your experience, which I'm not surprised because that's been my experience too. But what really, really impresses the heck out of me is the story you just shared about that patient who, who thought he was going to die. Why? Because it absolutely echoes my experience. I, I've only taken care of two people indirectly. The person who manages my, the outside of my property, takes care of the chickens and all the landscaping. His nephew initially came down with this, became very, very sick and had the exact same experience, thought he was going to die, could not go in the car. So uh, he asked, what could I do? I told him exactly I, to use the... the uh, nebulizer with, uh, I use a little bit higher concentration, 0.1%. You know, it's pretty similar to 0.04, mm-hmm. a little twice as strong, but essentially really, really low. And he had the exact same experience. This was like a 45 year old guy, heavy and met- metabolically uh, inflexible and insulin resistant, I'm sure. So, uh, but his, his first treatment got a little better. Second, by the third, he was a new man. He could, believe, he could breathe and he knew he was not going to die. It changed his life literally after the third treatment. And then interestingly, his mother came down with it the following week and had the exact same experience. Three treatments, done. 
that was you know, it. I'm, I'm smiling because that's the story that's been echoed in our practice that you know this look all the therapies work but yes the, the, the nebulizing of the peroxide and iodine, well, we used iodine too in there, so I can't say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't know about it until we spoke recently, yeah, but if I had, I would have used the iodine, but I just didn't know about it. But the nebulizing itself, just, we heard that same story. I mean, people were thinking they're going to die because they can't breathe. They're, you know, it causes anxiety. Causes, it's terrible. You know, I have asthma. I know what it's like when you can't breathe. It's, it's a horrible feeling. And I can't tell you how many of those 107, well, now 116 patients, um, you know, called, you know, on the phone, you know, distressed and saying, I can't breathe. I'm, I feel like I'm going to die. And, you know, once they started the therapy, you know, that just went away. You know, it's, 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 it's ironic that you, you know, you, you get a warning letter from the FTC telling you, you know, cease and desist. You know, what I, what I should have perhaps told the patients on the phone who said, I can't breathe is that because there's no, human clinical trials showing uh, prevention, treatment, or cure for COVID, nothing I can do for you. I can't recommend anything. An aspirin, Tylenol, you shouldn't take those anyways because that makes it worse. But, um, you know, I can't recommend a bath. I can't re recommend anything. You, you figure it out on your own, and when you get bad enough, go to the emergency room. But, you know, that's, that's not how I was trained as a physician. That's not, you know, what we should be doing as physicians. And um, no, Absolutely. So, no. no, you did the right thing, and, you know, down the road in the future, when people look back at this, they will recognize and understand that there's a there was a handful of physicians and who really understood the truth at a, at a profoundly foundational level and were recommending therapies that were safe, effective, non-toxic, and in many cases virtually free. I mean, the cost of that solution that you're recommending is literally pennies, pennies or less than a penny of treatment. I mean, it's it's almost free. Uh, so you, you mentioned, you know, how cheap and easy peroxide is, you know, my cousin who I spoke to you before about, um, you know, he was in um, three hours away in Ohio and I get a call uh, one Thursday night that he can't breathe and he's been sick for a couple of days with COVID and he can't um, walk to the bathroom without being short of breath. If he walks down the stairs, he's having to sit on the last step, you know, for a while and walking up the stairs and go halfway and stop and He's, he's a couple years younger than me and he's in good shape and, you know, he, he's scared and he can't breathe. So he's three and a half hours away. First, I was going to meet his wife halfway with the solution and a nebulizer. And, you know, I said, see if you can get a nebulizer. So they, they pro procured a nebulizer from a neighbor. And because we were three and a half hours away, I gave him a formula to make it at home. And it's not my preferred way of doing this at all. But what I had him do was get a, a quarter cup of uh, pure water, you know, distilled water or filtered water, um, put a um, quarter teaspoon of Celtic salt in there and let the salt dissolve. And they made their own distilled water. I mean, their own salt water. And so from that, we took three cc's and we added a drop of 3% um, food grade peroxide to it. And that's what he nebulized. Um, and he, you know, I was calling him about every hour to see how he's doing after the second hour, cause I told him to nebulize every hour. After the second hour, he said his lungs were opening up. He was better. It was about 50, 60% better. And then every time he did it, he got better. And, you know, two or three days later, he, he was over this. 
you know, he was taking the oral stuff along with it. So I don't quite know what worked, but you know, it costs pennies for him to do that. And you know, it's, it's a truly remarkable therapy. Yeah. Virtually no side effects. So I'm one, you know, the experiences you shared and the experiences I've had with it also suggests that it works literally within hours, hours, hours. So the, what seems to conflict with that in your paper is that there was the time duration on treatment before symptoms first improved. And I think that level was like two days or so. So I'm wondering how that data got, I mean, is not lining up with what our experience is. Well, remember, there's 107 patients and we had a few patients whose symptoms lingered much longer. And it just, it just skewed the data a little bit. But there were a lot of patients that told me that same story that, you know, after a couple of nebulized treatments, they were better. You know, the, the hospitalized patient that I told you about earlier, the big burly, you know, guy, he was sick for seven, eight days before he started our therapy. So that was included in the time frame from when symptoms started. So everything gets skewed a little bit, but you know, I, I can tell you anecdotally, well, not anecdotally, what my patients told me was multiple patients told me they felt better within a few hours of doing their nebulized treatment. And the other thing was we didn't hear from patients at first when they had symptoms. So I included the days of being sick from when the first symptoms started. Oh, that's not fair. So uh, uh, what, what would be a much better indicator for the study would be how long did it take for them to improve after their first nebulization therapy? Yeah, you know, I didn't, I didn't track that. And you're right, that yeah. would be a, a certainly a good thing to track. Um, I just didn't track those numbers, so. But I know, but, but and I'm not faulting you for it. I'm just thinking it, it gives people a better understanding of what they can expect when they implement the program. So my guess and experience is, I mean, it's, you're going to have kind of improvement that day, most likely within a few hours, by typically the secondary yes. treatment. And that's been your experience. That has definitely been my experience. And that's been my experience over decades of doing this therapy with, you know, they people didn't get really short of breath. That wasn't a huge complaint with other flu-like illnesses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, they feel better. Their flu-like symptoms feel better. Everything feels better within, you know, a couple hours of starting nebulizing. All right. So you clearly have... Um, demonstrated that you're a pioneer in this area. I personally don't know of any other practices doing this. So I'm curious as to what the response is in your local medical community up there. Are you ostracized? Are you look at, viewed as a flake? Uh, do you do, or other physicians recognizing your brilliance and actually referring themselves or others to you? Well, brilliance, I'm not so sure about, but... Um... <laughs> Um, uh, don't don't underrate yourself. I mean, to have the the insights and the wisdom to identify crucial fundamental strategies to improving people's health at the core basic level, and then the courage and the bravery to implement it is is not something that should be underappreciated. Thank you. Um, it was interesting in the, in the middle of the crisis as I was posting. I was doing a blog post about every other day, and I was posting the interview once or twice or three times a week as we got the patients better and they were willing to talk about it. You know, I started hearing from doctors all over the country and you know, especially in New York, New Jersey, and they were hospitalized hospital physicians saying they're dying. They're dying left and right. They don't know what to do. The therapies aren't working. They want to, number one, they want the therapy for their family. And number two, they want to help their patients. So I was hearing from doctors. They were interested. I heard from a couple of local doctors who sent patients to us who you know, they couldn't help them and they had nothing to offer them. And 
you know, I, I, they have, I've had long-term relationships with them and we got, you know, those were part of our 107 patients, a few of them, and they got better. Um, I heard from uh, um, the head hospitalist of one of the, well, two hospitals called me from local hospitals who were treating patients asking me, tell me about this nebulized iodine and peroxide. And so I told them, um, you know, it really needs to be done in the emergency room, not by the time they're ventilated. But the, you know, this is a, the hospitals were going to use it on the ventilated patients. That's what they told me. I asked them to report back to me. I didn't hear anything back. So I, I'm, I don't know how they did either way with it. But I said, I, I don't know if it's going to help a ventilated patient at that point. I, you know, and um, I said, it really needs to be done. The first thing they hit the ER is they should be given an IV of vitamin C. Um, they should be given the oral supplements and they should be given a nebulized treatment. That's what I would do, you know, um, I, and it kept our patients out of the hospital, but that wasn't done. So, but there was interest in it because there was nothing offered out there. So it was, yeah, it was yeah. really the first time I'd been really got a bunch of emails and messages and phone calls from doctors saying, Hey, tell me how it works. Tell me what you're doing. So, so let me summarize this because I think it's important to, is a take home message. This, this is my uh, understanding of how I would treat myself or a family member would be at the very first sign, use this diluted food grade hydrogen peroxide in a, in a desktop nebulizer, not the cheap $25 ones you buy on Amazon. This is either closer to $100. Get one of those. And the key, the key here, folks, is to have it. Have it in your possession before you need it. An ounce of care of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So have it. Then get the peroxide. Uh, if you have to, you don't have to worry about the food grade. I mean, it would be ideally to get food grade, but the other one's probably going to work too. And the toxins are going to be relatively minor because it's so diluted. And then you get that ready. And I would do that the very first sign you have it. This is not something that needs to be done every day. I wouldn't do it every day. If you're healthy, don't do it. But if you're exposed to someone who's sick or you have a sign symptoms, I would do it. Now, here's where it gets confusing because there's so many different ways that you can approach this, like, like your oral protocol. In my mind, the, the, the number one thing is, is nebulized peroxide and iodine. Uh, and then to, to, well, preventively, you want to make sure your vitamin D levels are measured in above 40 to 50 nanograms, ideally even 60 nanograms per milliliter by blood tests. And you have it, and you multiply by 2.5 if you're measuring nanomoles per liter. So um, get, get that before you're sick. Do that. Uh, so you don't have to take this mega dose that you're using in your protocol. But yeah, if you're in a, America's done the work, Paul Merrick, and you acknowledged him in your paper, doing IV vitamin C for sepsis, and clearly it works. But I'm thinking, you know, vitamin C and intravenous vitamin C may not even be necessary for you using this protocol. You've got the optimized and you've got the peroxide on board and then I would recommend quercetin and zinc early in the course not late uh, as sort of an adjunctive therapy I don't know maybe and if you late stage disease another thing that seems to be really useful is NAC uh, because in the math protocol developed by Merrick which is uh, math stands for M is methylprednisolone uh, A is ascorbic acid or vitamin C T is thiamine B1 and H is heparin, and heparin is, is uh, administered because there's a, this is a, a vascular disorder too. There are, there are clotting complications, and the heparin seems to improve that. But NAC 
will actually go in there and disrupt the sulfide bonds in the von Willebrand, Willebrand factors that leads to the platelet aggregation. So you can dissolve those with something as simple as NAC, which also has a side benefit of reducing oxidative stress and increasing glutathione levels. So to me, the zinc, glutathione, quercetin, vitamin D, and the nebulizer, that is a home run. So I, now I'm doing it intellectually and academically uh, from all the, the literature I've reviewed, not in the trenches and in the clinics like you are. So I'm wondering what your feedback is on my, my approach or recommendation. Look, I think there's many ways to, uh, I hate to use the word skin a cat, but to, yeah, there's yeah. Many, sure. many ways to, uh, the, look, hydroxychloroquine should be open for prescribing. Yeah, if they want to, but use quercetin. There's no, no prescription required. Right. And you, I, you, I don't know if you're aware of it. The FDA is actually looking at right now from taking uh, NAC off the market because it's useful for COVID. Of course, of course. You know, COVID's a, COVID's a whole new game, and we've never seen censorship like this. We've never seen draconian measures and lockdowns and whatever that they've done with this. And, you know, unfortunately, I think we're going to be in this boat until November 3rd. You know? <laughs> November of what year? <laughs> I know. Well, I know. And, um, you know, I think that if we just could put our intellectual hats on and think about this, and look, I'm, I am in the trenches. You know, I, we were outside doing this work and talking to people and I'm still talking to people. And I took a phone call this morning um, from a patient's daughter who was sent home from college because she had it. Um, so I, I think that there's- the Yeah, so we don't know. I mean, effective ways to treat this and we should be studying this. We should be reporting on it. We should be yeah. allowed to report on it and we should be allowed to study it. And um, we wouldn't have the travesty that's, you know, that's happened to our country. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I just, I, I am so in awe of what you've done and, and the courage it took to do that and the risk that you've taken, obviously, is exemplified by getting warning letters from the FTC because, you know, we need courageous physicians like you in the trenches. You know, I chose a different route. I veered, we were, we've started pretty similarly, but then I veered off into sort of widespread, uh, education as opposed to treating patients in the trenches, but we absolutely need clinicians like you that can, that can bring the science forward, that are willing to, to, to experiment or rationally, not foolishly with these well-proven, safe, inexpensive therapies that can, that can really address the foundational cause of the illness. So you've done a magnificent job and I really want to express my sincere gratitude and appreciation for helping others understand this and provide the evidence that yes, indeed, it does work. Thank you. So uh, I want you to keep up the good work and I want you to send me a copy of your book because we'll probably have you on to interview about that too, maybe get an update on what your experience is with your protocols. Sounds great. I would love to do it. And thank you for all your educational work. I read it every day. I look for the feed first thing in the morning <laughs> and um, you know, save a bunch of articles and go back to them and appreciate everything. All right. Well, thanks for everything you're doing. Thanks, Joe.